about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. with you this evening. If you're new or visiting, great to have you here. My name is Matt. Uh, you already know that. Uh, we are walking through this wonderful part of the letter to the Romans. Very fascinating part of the letter, kind of having looked at the grace of God revealed remarkably uh, in the person of Jesus in the back half of Romans. We turn to what a new life for God's people looks like as a result of that grace that we have received. And in the first part of this chapter, It's very much focused upon the way the community, the church of God is to interact and be amongst themselves, the type of relationships and grace we show to each other. In this part of the chapter, there's a slight pivot toward our relationship with the world and how we are to have a public presence uh, outside ourselves to everyone else as well. And what is the posture and the stance and the substance of that relationship to the world? And the really big, strong thing that Paul wants to say is that when the world has a complicated, sometimes difficult, even violent at times, relationship with the church and with believers, we are to never take revenge. Vengeance is a very strong theme in our culture. It's in every action movie involving Liam Neeson in particular. Uh, Revenant... Uh, Kill Bill, even innocuously like Matilda, is filled with this longing and this search for payback, for giving back what has been given or to take back what has been taken. Payback and vengeance are a a deep animating force in a lot of cinema, in a lot of storytelling, because a lot of power in vengeance and payback, a lot of strength can be derived from it. Even the new Batman movie, Robert Pattinson, I'm vengeance, rather than I'm Batman. Now, this is a really interesting thing to see it so soaking our, our cinemas and our movies and our storytelling. It means that payback is in our minds and in our hearts a lot of the time. And we need to grapple with that. And I think there is a really important thing we need to keep in mind as Christians, as those who believe who are part of a church, about our tendency toward a version of vengeance and a want for payback as we relate to the world, particularly when it doesn't like us particularly much. I think there's really soft, uh, small strands of this in our culture at the moment as a church, maybe not locally, but globally. We live in a time in history when Christians in the West used to have a lot of power, a lot of say, a lot of rights, and all of a sudden we don't have as many as we used to. We used to have a positive position in the culture, and now we're in a more alienated, negative position. We had a place that is in some ways being taken from us, and this can lead us to have a sense of injury, of being wronged, And just a little bit of a need for payback. 
just a little bit of a need, a nursed need to take back what has been taken from us. A very famous Christian thinker, uh, James Hunter Davison in America, analyzing all the political movements around different types of Christians in America, said there was one common trait he found disturbingly underneath a lot of political rhetoric of any type, left, right, center, Anabaptist in America. He said too many things came from resentment. As in they were motivated by an anger or an envy or a hate or even a rage and a revenge. That in a lot of their storytelling was a sense of being injured. And that there was a wrong that needed to be righted. Now it's worth pausing and just considering tonight whether we're being swept into this a little bit. Whether there's an undercurrent of feeling like things have been taken and whether that might becoming a bit about the animating force in our relationship toward the world. Because what Paul wants to say tonight, having heard the Lord Jesus say it himself, is that we are summoned to something radically different in our relationship to anyone in the world, and especially to anyone who might oppose or confront the Christian faith. We are summoned to a grace-filled position that has no space for payback. So let's walk through that this evening and let's examine this posture, this position, this stance that we are summoned to. Four things for you tonight. First one is this. We are to bless rather than curse. In many ways, this is the heading above everything that follows. It's the big command uh, that kind of everything runs off in the rest of the chapter. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This is particularly for those Christians who come under attack from non-Christian places. Now, in this point of Christian history, there haven't been great state-sponsored violent outbursts against Christianity. That comes a bit later in the Roman period. But there is a sense of uncomfortable nature of Christianity and its alien place in society, and it's not particularly welcome. In many ways, it's more similar to where we are now, although probably a bit more violent, I would suspect. And Paul's number one thing is that in response to opposition, we are to not curse. To not want the worst for those who oppose us. To not seek their demise even. But instead the radical opposite, to bless. Perhaps echoing the words of Jesus, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Rather than seeking their harm, seeking their good. Rather than seeking their demise, seeking their flourishing. Rather than uh, closing off from them, moving toward them. Bless them rather than curse them. Is the fundamental stance we are to take toward the world. Even when it comes in opposition toward us. What's really interesting is what Paul does next to fill in this idea of blessing. What does it mean to bless those who persecute you? It means rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. 
that the sign of wanting to bless someone or moving positively toward them is to remain in affectionate, sympathetic connection to them, to what's happening for them, to the real joy they are experiencing, or the real sadness. That the great temptation when you feel like someone is opposing you is to close your heart off to their experience and their humanity, to pretend that they're not experiencing difficult things in the same way we are, to cut off the the cords of sympathy between us and between them. Paul says to bless is to remain joyful when they're joyful, to be attentive to who they are and what is good and rejoicing in it and feeling sad when things aren't good. He then goes on, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. He kind of goes backward at this point to what he was talking about just before this section, about the type of relationships we're to have as a community, where we're not haughty and thinking really uh, proud thoughts of ourselves, but stooping down to help and love one another, living in harmony with one another. In lots of ways, rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn is to be the bread and butter of our life together as God's people. That's what affectionate, sincere love does, as Paul's already spoken about. It feels with others. It senses their losses and their gains, and and they're real one to the other because we are one body. And we live in this harmony where we are considerate of each other, even when uh, the world would not consider us when we are lowly, when we are nothing. It's almost like we are to live such a remarkable life amongst ourselves in harmony and affection that it naturally then overflows to others, to the world, to anyone else watching on, even to those who are in opposition to us. We can't even help ourselves because that's the life of love we live together. We are to bless And to not curse. Friend, if you were to think of the the person who is opposing you in some way. Or who might be an enemy of God's people in some way. Have you closed off your heart to them? Or could you still feel their joys and their sadnesses? It's a really interesting tell of our position towards someone else or a group. Can we still feel what they feel or have we lost the sense of their humanity? Have we lost our ability to move toward them in blessing? But Paul moves even further. He says this posture involves us making peace and doing what is good. The exact opposite of payback. He says, don't pay anyone evil for evil, which is just classic retribution. If something evil is done to me, I will do something evil in return. That's the very heart and nature of revenge, of of vengeance, of payback. You gave it to me, I give it to you. That is just how things happen. But Paul says, we are not to be in the business of doing evil, particularly in response to evil. In fact, the very opposite is to be the, our approach as God's people. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. What a remarkable sentence. Be careful, thoughtful, attentive, interested. What 
is happening in our society, in our city, in our suburb, in our culture. What would be right or good is probably better for that word. What would be good, beautiful even, in the eyes of everyone? What would everyone consider to be a good, blessed thing to happen in our suburb tonight? And do it, he says. Now, there's obviously limits to that. Not everything that is right in the eyes of everyone is right in the eyes of the Lord. We are to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. But we are to be the particular business of the things that are commonly beautiful and good between us and our culture, between the raising up of the lowly, the consideration of what makes for common human flourishing and harmony, for the goodness of family and relationship, for the ability for everyone to have enough and a place in society. There are many common goods that when you walk into your office tomorrow, you can be on the business of doing. That are goods to be done for our culture, for our city, in the name of Jesus. And that is to be the bread and the butter of your relationship to your world and your city. Be careful. Do what's right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Make peace, not war. Don't continue arguments. End them. Don't stoke the fires of hatred. Cool them. Don't pull the threads of relationship apart. Be the one that helps them weave together. Blessed are the peacemakers, the Lord Jesus said. For they will be sons of their Father in heaven. In the office tomorrow, in your department block, in your house... Are you the one that moves in the direction of peace, for the making of peace, for the making of love and kindness and graciousness and goodness? This is our place in society, not the doing of evil in the, in the place of evil, but the doing of good and the making of peace. This is what we are summoned to as God's people, and we are summoned to do it to everyone. You see that twice? In the eyes of everyone, live at peace with everyone. Moving toward in blessing rather than curse. But there is a very important part of this passage, particularly when we consider the fact that real evil happens in our world. Real evil happens to Christian people, even in Nigeria today. Awful things happening in persecution and violence. Awful things happen in this world. Awful things have happened to people in this room. They were not good. And they never will be. What do we make of all that? How do we respond to it? Well, we are to leave vengeance to the Lord. Because to the Lord it belongs. It's very important what Paul says next. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
So the reason why we need not take revenge, why repayment is off the table for us, is not because repayment is not due. Not because justice should not be done upon evil, but that the role of taking that justice and making that payment does not belong to us. It instead belongs to the Lord. It has always belonged to the Lord. He who perfectly sees every evil for what it is and knows exactly the just punishment it, that is deserved and has a rightful wrath, anger against it. No evil will pass his eye and no debt will be unpaid. Now that is pretty strong. And it, it, it's, it's difficult when you read this text to go, well, how do those two things work together? How can we be summoned to this, this life of you know, blessing rather than cursing? But he does payback? God does payback? How do those two things go together? Shouldn't God be like us? Shouldn't he just be blessing? And, and, and the, but the point is, is that God's love of justice and the sureness of his vengeance is the thing that frees us from it. Because real evil demands something to happen. And knowing that God will do it frees us to just bless and do good. Now this, you might still be wrestling with how this logic all comes together. Um, a thinker in the States, Miroslav Volf from Yugoslavia, been through some interesting parts of Yugoslavia's history, some really awful parts, feels the same. And he suggests this, a thought experiment. My thesis, that the practice of non-violence, or moving and blessing and honoring others, requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining, thought experiment, you're delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent. It will invariably die. Which is simply to say, when you are immediately in the presence of horrific evil, when you've experienced it, you know that something has to happen. That judgment has to fall. That a loving God has to respond. And that the only thing that frees humans wrenched in suffering and evil from the dark need to avenge what happened is a sure sense of the good judgment of God. That he will do it. And he will get it right. And so I don't have to. It is a great freedom to in fact hand over that longing for repayment we carry with us sometimes to the Lord. So we no longer have to carry it ourselves. It is a loss 
to say that the losses of innocence and awful things cannot be repaid in the, the way we would want them to be, to relinquish our control over the way they happen. But it is an infinite comfort to know it is in the hand of the Lord. And he will avenge because he is a good and gracious God who will not stand evil. And so we are free instead to bless. This is where he ends. Our response to evil, knowing that the Lord will judge, is to overcome evil with good. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If the, the Lord is the one who will avenge, then we can do what the proverb says, which is respond with mercy to those who need it. To actually always be open to the needs of others and loving them with what we have, regardless of what they have done to us. And the proverb says that this fascinating thing naturally happens when you respond to an enemy with grace and mercy and love. What it's not saying is that in a funny way you get payback on them by loving them in response and these coals appear and kind of they get, they get what's coming. to it's, it's, The idea is that when someone harms you but then you show them mercy, there is this wonderful undoing of their evil. And perhaps even a sense of shame that they may feel for what they've done. That in some way, their action of evil is undone by your mercy. That's at least what he says in the next sentence, isn't it? That there are these two kind of outcomes for us. We can be overcome by evil or overcome evil with good. You know, when things happen to us and our need for payback becomes the core thing that drives us, has not evil taken hold of us? Has not the action of someone else overtaken us? But when instead we refuse payback and choose mercy and grace and blessing and peacemaking, have we not subverted the evil done to us? And in some way wondrously overcome it's intoxicating and dark effect. This is what we are summoned to. To overcome evil with good. I don't know about you, but I have all kinds of petty lists for payback in my little dark heart. All kinds of petty rememberings of small things that people have said and done to me that I still hold over them. I don't know why I do it. It's just always there. And as I read this, I'm convicted that I'm often overcome by evil, to be honest. They're very easily those dark longings for payback and the cycle of violence is within me. But you know what? The evil that came to Jesus did not overcome him. 
He who was persecuted and mocked and beaten and executed without cause. You know, his response was not to succumb to vengeance, but to offer himself in goodness and love. You know, the Lord should take out payback on all of us. But he chooses not to. In the Lord Jesus, we do not receive what we deserve. Because in the Lord Jesus, he overcame our evil with his good action of willingly suffering on our behalf. There is no payback coming for you now because of him. And so you can be free from the things that are overcoming you and instead move toward others with the same mercy and grace and peacemaking that you have received. It is the grace of the gospel that overcomes our evil, that we too might overcome evil with good. So what's in your heart today? What grudges are you holding? Are you being swept into the things of our culture? Bless instead of, and do not curse. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray today that you would overcome the deep, dark urges in us to pay back the wrongs we have, have been done to us. Oh, Father, thank you that we do not receive what we deserve. And Father, we pray as we let go of the things that we hold on to and allow you to be a good God of justice, that you would, by your Spirit, move us out to respond with mercy and grace and goodness and kindness, even in the difficult patches of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.